The Clean Power Hour is brought to you by CPS America, the maker of North America's number one three-phase string inverter. With over six gigawatts shipped in the U.S., the CPS America product lineup includes three-phase string inverters ranging from 25 to 275 kW. Their flagship inverter, the CPS 250-275, is designed to work with solar plants ranging from 2 megawatts to 2 gigawatts. The 250-275 pairs well with CPS America's exceptional data communication, controls, and energy storage solutions. Go to chintpowersystems.com to find out more. We have practically foreclosed some of the worst-case scenarios. We've shrunk the range of possible outcomes, and in doing so, have trimmed off, I think, some of the truly apocalyptic species-threatening <laughs> outcomes. The Clean Power Hour is brought to you by the Clean Power Consulting Group. Check out all of our content at cleanpower.group forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to the show and give us a rating and a review. Today on the Clean Power Hour, is climate change going to ruin everybody's future? I certainly hope not. My guest today is Dave Roberts, the famous podcaster and journalist for Canary Media. He has a great podcast called Volts, and you can find all of his content at volts.wtf, which shows his sense of humor. Hmm. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, glad to be here. All right. Been looking forward to this for a long time. And I happened to stumble upon a short video you made almost exactly 10 years ago oh about Climate change explained in 15 minutes. And if you want to see that video, just Google it. YouTube, Dave Roberts, climate change, and you'll find it. And Dave just lays out the situation. We're a rock in space that has a thin atmosphere, and therefore we're not a frozen rock, which is a wonderful thing because it makes it possible for us to be here. The downside of that is that when you dump CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere to the tune of 800 gigatons or more, actually, it's 800 gigatons equivalent that has remained, you have a scenario where the earth warms up and it is warming and it will continue to warm for some time. But we're now, you know, on the verge of a transformation, hopefully, of our economy mm -hmm. to one that is much lighter on the pollutant side of the equation. We call this the clean energy transition. So Dave and I are going to geek out on this topic and see where we are 10 years later. So I don't know if you have any introductory thoughts about that, Dave. Was your was your talk too pessimistic or too optimistic? You know, it's funny. It was the, what's called a TEDx talk, which is like, sounds to strangers like a TED talk, but is in fact <laughs> kind of the low budget franchise version of a, of a TED Talk, which I did at Evergreen College. And I didn't really think hardly anything of it. And I didn't think I was saying anything particularly new or interesting. But it is bizarre how that talk has lived on on the internet. It's not something I ever expected. Like I still, I still have people approach me about that, saying that they find me through that. And as you say, it's a decade old now. Which just to me, it's less that has less to do with the talk being particularly brilliant or anything. It's just to me, that's just testament to how difficult it is to find 
a simple, plain language, <laughs> just someone talking to you like a human being about climate change and what's gonna and what's gonna happen and why it's bad. There's so much jargon. There's so much science. There's so much culture war. There's so much nonsense about it. It's, I think it's just very difficult to find someone who seems like they're talking to you like a human being about it. And so people have really seized onto it. So in that sense, it's been sort of delightful. I think it was appropriately pessimistic, let's say. <laughs> I think it was appropriately pessimistic. But I also think that in some senses, I mean, the situation we're in, let me put it this way, I'll back up. The situation we're, we're in, I wish I could remember, I saw a great quote about this online. But basically, things are getting worse and worse and better and better, faster and faster. That's the the condition of modernity. And that's what's going on in climate change too. So obviously, in the 10 years since the talk, we've emitted more greenhouse gases in that 10 years than in the centuries, literally centuries prior. Like we're just ramping up our emissions of natural gas, uh, our, our greenhouse gases. Still, we're still on the upward slope. We're still emitting more and more every year, which is bad. <laughs> and we've seen the effects of it in the last 10 years in ways that are a lot more stark, I think, and rapid in some areas in some senses than even scientists thought, you know, in terms of the bizarre heat over the the Arctic and, and things like that. Some of those cycles have have degraded faster than predicted. So in that sense, it's very alarming. But at the same time, we have taken action as frustrating as it is, and as slow as it is, and in, insufficient as it is, we have globally coordinated to take action. And we have, you know, there's a lot of interesting new research that's just out about this. We have, I think, practically foreclosed some of the worst case scenarios. We've shrunk the range of possible outcomes. And in doing so, have trimmed off, I think, some of the truly apocalyptic species threatening <laughs> outcomes. I think those are now very unlikely. So, you know, the sort of the best assessments, the best, you know, sort of if you bring all the models together, our best guess right now is that we're headed for somewhere between two and three degrees rise and, and could still keep it under two if we hustled. Keeping it under 1.5 is probably, practically speaking, out of our grasp at this point, but we could still hit two. But even if we just are going the way we've been going, if we're going on our current trajectory, we're coming in somewhere between two and three. So it used to be that four and five and six degrees were at least on the table, at least among the realm of possibilities. And those would mean, you could quite literally mean, you know, the end of the species. So, so between two and three is, and this is why it's harder to give a simple message about it these days, I, I, I find, because on the one hand, between two and three degrees is way better than more than three degrees. Way, way, way better. We are moving in the right direction. We're flattening the curve, as they say, slowly but surely, and in an accelerating way. But at the same time, between two and three is going to be really bad. As you know, if you've read the IPCC report, that plenty of bad stuff is going to happen between two and three. And we still have lower probability, but, but still out there, 
the possibility that hitting two or 2.5 will trigger feedbacks that further accelerate temperature rise. And then the whole thing gets out of our control. And, and then, you know, then even if it doesn't hit for this century, just keeps going up and up and up forever out of our control, which would be equally disastrous for future people. So we're not, <laughs> this is all a long-winded way of saying we are by no means out of the woods yet. And we are still looking at some nasty, you know, damages and loss of life and, and, and trouble much more than, than we might hope. But we have, I think, probably avoided extinction level events kind of stuff. So, you know, it's a good, it's yeah, good it's news, not, bad news. It's not so much extinction that I fear. I'm an ecologist. So one of the, the laws of ecology is that everything goes extinct. Eventually, right. if you if you give a species enough time, it, it, it tends to go to zero. So it's a question of how long do we go? Do we go a, f a few more million years or many, many more millions of years? And also, how many and, other species do we take out in the process of, of flailing around? Yeah. Yeah, we are in the, you know, in popular culture, they say the sixth great extinction, but it's actually, I think, the ninth great extinction. And But we are causing a great extinction Back to this thing about how existential a threat is climate change. It's a very serious threat. I don't think it's an existential threat to the species in the next, say, 100 years, but it could take away the good life that we mm -hmm. have today. And, you know, it's an amazing time to be alive. And I'm super grateful that I am alive at this time because it's very exciting at the same time. And we have the opportunity to transcend our past, so to speak, it is challenging to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. They're very addicting and they're just so energy rich. Nate Hoggins has a great analogy or reference and, and you can find his stuff at The Great Simplification and he has a podcast by the same name. We get five years of human labor out of one barrel of oil. And so we humans are now pulling out of the ground 100 billion barrels of oil equivalents per year, and that's equivalent to 500 billion people's worth of work. So it's, it's an incredible luxury that it gives us. That's the bottom line is fossil fuels give us just an immense – Yeah, but I like to, I like to, I like to talk stuff. about the flip side of that, which is because we found fossil fuels and thus – energy became in some sense so easy for us, right? Doing, in some sense, we were able to brute force our way through difficulties and, and sort of brute force our way up the, up the sort of, you know, scale of wealth. We haven't, we don't yet really fully know how difficult it is to live off the current earth energy budget to live off the energy that's coming to us from the sun day by day. We, it seems super, super hard, especially early on in this fight. It seems super, super hard just because our our entire societies, our economies, our personal habits, everything we do, our regulations, our laws are just built around this sort of brute force, highly concentrated energy. And saying we need to change all that obviously seems huge and daunting. But this is but what gives me hope or what gives me joy day to day, honestly, in my job is now we've started 
thinking about this. How can we live off the energy that, that, that comes down from the sun day to day without spending down our reserves, without spending down our saved energy, which is what fossil fuel is? How can we do this? And it turns out nobody's really been looking. So once you start looking, there are clever ideas all over the place. There are clever ways to do it all over the place that have not been discovered just because nobody's been looking. So while we're living in this sort of dire, it's a dire time in that this this force is bearing down on us and damages are definitely coming and trouble and chaos is definitely coming. At the same time, we're living through this renaissance of cleverness and creativity and innovation you know, all these young people now who who were, you know, kids when they heard my YouTube talk are now working for companies. They're now engineers and, and, and software developers and people running venture funds. And so they're gripped by this problem and they're looking now, they're pouring all these resources into how can we do this? And, and it just turns out that because it's been so long that nobody's been looking, there are just clever ideas lying all over the place. So it's never been a better time to be a, a sort of inventor or an innovator in this space because you're doing something, one, that's like absolutely virtuous, <laughs> absolutely necessary, right? S literally saving the species. And it's just like, if you happen to be in the right place at the right time, you could invent something that changes millions of lives, you know, which is like an amazing thing for never. And you could become wildly rich. So it's just like... It's an amazing time to be tracking so it, the solution space right now. I mean, my mantra is wind, solar, and energy storage. We know that we can clean the grid with those three technologies. The devil is in the details of storage. We just need to scale wind and solar at about 2x of what we're scaling it. And we could have a net zero economy by heck 2030. Uh, Technically, uh, that's feasible. Uh, that's that, I would say but, that's debatable. I would expand the storage portion of that to wind and solar are obviously going to be the bulk, the workhorses, right? Because they're the cheapest. So they're going to be yeah. your whatever, 80%. We don't know yet exactly what the number is. And so then, but they're right. variable, right? They come and go with the weather. So you need flexible resources to complement them. And there are a bunch of flexible resources. And this is another area where that category expands the more thought and sort of imagination goes into it. So storage is one of those. You can shift demand through various ways of controlling and moving demand around. There are non-intermittent non renewables like geothermal or smaller hydro. There's work going on on these sort of small meltdown-proof nukes. Who knows? They might be helpful at some point. And then there's all this stuff now happening in, because we've seen an explosion of innovation in chemical storage, you know, lithium ion batteries for the most part have just been getting super, super cheap. But now we're seeing a bunch of attention turned to thermal storage, which just means storing heat in things. And there's just a whole another wave of innovation happening in that space. Cause it's another thing where just people haven't really been looking. So there's like, I was just talking with someone the other day who's his big innovation is he's like, yeah, we stick a electrode on a big rock <laughs> and heat the rock. And then when we need to get the heat out, we just open the thing and the rock heats what we need to heat. And I'm like, that's like that technology dates back to, you know, proto humans heating a rock and then using the heat later. Yeah. But if you do it in a smart way, 
in a sort of software informed way, you can have a huge effect on the energy system just with dead simple technologies like that. So yes, I think it's absolutely doable now. And I think more to the point, it's very clear at this point that the primary barriers, I mean, it was probably never really technology that was the primary barrier, but it's certainly not anymore. It's all about politics <laughs> at the at this point. Politics and regulation and just the difficulty of change, the difficulty of social change, the difficulty of changing people's habits and and you know, and all that is reflected in the sclerosis of politics. But that's where the that's the hitch now. Yeah, we we being social it has a double edge. <laughs> We've invented this thing called markets and markets are very effective. They accumulate power and wealth very quickly and effectively. And then they captivate the system, so to speak. And, you know, now we have this runaway train and it's hard to slow it down or derail it, but it has to be, it has to be disrupted eventually one way or another. Right. And, and I did want to say that the problem isn't climate change. The problem is overshoot. We are overshooting the carrying capacity of the earth. And so as, as many biological systems have demonstrated time and time again, this is a very common phenomenon in nature, and we're no different. We're on this little island called Earth, and it has a, it has a limit. So we're now bumping up against that limit. There's 100 million people born every year. 88 million of them survive. We're, we're, we're starving 10 million people a year. So that's a, that's a symptom of being in overshoot. But, to, but, the, but again, and, just to, just to um, go back to my yin and yang theme here, there's another side of that story too, yeah. which is, you know, so the, so the big debate around that, to put it just very crudely, is, is it possible to dematerialize human flourishing in some way? In other words, can it, is it possible for humans to continue flourishing at greater and greater levels of comfort or whatever without drawing down finite resources, right? Which is sort of the economist's great hope. Or is there, in some sense, some intrinsic connection such that only radically changing our behavior will will work? And I don't want to take any position on that, I, but I do want to say there are two, two things are fundamentally changing in the human picture, which is that two things are getting trivially cheap, which is going to change everything for life in humans. One is software, intelligence, basically. I would characterize it as intelligence. Computing power has just been getting reliably cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And it's going to continue doing so such that there are a, a million different ways now of substituting intelligence for stuff. For, in other words, like by doing stuff more cleverly, we can use less stuff to do it. And more cleverly means often letting AI figure out how to do it in a more efficient way. So in a lot of ways, we can that computing power is substituting for material, for, for finite materials. So that's one force pushing in the other way. And the other thing is that's even more, I think, radical and that people have really have not processed yet is if solar and wind power continue down 
the learning curve the way they have been consistently going for several decades now, they are going to get trivially cheap, especially solar is just going to get at some point, you know, a decade, two decades from now, three decades from now, at some point going to get just literally trivially cheap. And we're going to face a problem that humanity has never, ever faced before, which is what to do with an abundance of energy, what to do when you have access to more energy, literally, than you know what to do with when it's when it's so trivially cheap that you can just throw energy at, at problems that before uh, you couldn't. So, so if there's anything that can sort of dematerialize human economies and and, and societies, it is the combination of those two: dirt, cheap, abundant, clean energy. And dirt cheap, abundant computing power. I think you combine those, and you just open up possibilities for humanity that that are new, completely new in history. And I think it kind of throws a lot of the lessons you learn from history on their ear, right? Like we're entering something that is it's it's very difficult to learn from history about what is possible in a context of free, abundant energy and free, abundant computing power. We just really don't know what we'll, those will bring. So you're optimistic that we can invent machines that will suck all that <laughs> 800 gigatons out of the atmosphere and get us back to 320 by, by well, 2050? Well, if I can answer your question very precisely, I am optimistic that we have the technical capacity to do so, yes. <laughs> uh, am I confident that we have the wherewithal? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, this is the funny. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I know I'm sounding incredibly uncharacteristically, honestly, optimistic about about a lot of this stuff. But I, at the same time, on the flip side, I've never been more. I've never felt more dismal <laughs> about politics, <laughs> about about human society, and about humans' ability to because we're so numerous now. And because, you know, the earth is relatively small and there's a lot of us now, the big characteristic problems of this century and all centuries to come are giant collective action problems that can only be solved by collective action. And we're still lugging around these Neanderthal brains <laughs> that want to draw a circle around a piece of land and and yep. and bonk everyone over the head that walks into the circle. So, and the the example of COVID. I mean, I know I'm not telling you anything. I'm not telling anyone anything. But the but our utter inability to get our shit together to address what is just paradigmatically a collective action problem. Like when people talk about collective action problems, they literally use pandemics as an example. Like in the, in the friggin' encyclopedia, you go to collective action problem, it will cite pandemics as the sort of characteristic case. A pandemic hit and we just couldn't, as a species generally, but especially in the US, just could not muster the solidarity to take the collective action steps that would have been required to make everyone better off, right? Everyone would have been better off if we had acted in a more coordinated, solidaristic fashion. But instead, our same old sort of tribal idiot culture war nonsense came in, and now we're all worse off for it. It could not be more clear. But we just can't seem to can't seem to get our, our, our shit together. So this is, you know, a lot of people in the climate world 
have said for years, I'm sure you've heard this, you know, once it gets bad enough, like once there are storms crashing down and once, you know, once the symptoms are obvious enough, it will galvanize people into action. But I look at COVID, I'm like, you can't get any more obvious than people falling dead day to day, a thousand people a day dying. Like you can't get any more direct of an effect than that. And that didn't work to galvanize us. That didn't work to have us get our stuff together. So in what? how is climate ever going to do that, you know? Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Clean Power Hour or viewing it on YouTube. We do have a great YouTube channel. If you're not subscribed, please go to cleanpower.group and hit that YouTube icon and subscribe to our channel. Of course, you can find all of our content on your favorite audio platform as well. So please give us a rating and review. I wanted to let you know that we are partnered with the Midwest Solar Expo this year. Check it out, MidwestSolarExpo.com. You can get a 15% discount with our code, which is CPH15. We will also put that in the show notes, CPH numeral 15. The Midwest Solar Expo is the premier B2B solar and clean energy event in the region. It hosts over 450 clean tech executives from around the country. And it's a lovely event in Minneapolis, June 20th to 22nd. So please check it out. Back to the show. And one of the things that, that I've learned, I live in the Midwest. I don't have hurricanes. Tornadoes I, I don't have wildfires. We, uh, we converted, yeah, we have tornadoes. We converted the prairie to corn and beans, and those things don't really burn very well. So, but... But the the disruption that I'm concerned about is mass migration of humans from places where food systems are going to be disrupted. And when people get hungry, they just move because it's that or starve to death, right? And when 100 million people come across your border unexpectedly— we don't tend We're not to handle those emergencies again, very well Again, again, look around at, at at recent history at how people react to large sudden migrations. It's a, a dumpster fire everywhere. Look how the U.S. I mean, look how the U.S. during yeah. Trump. Literally, people were coming seeking political asylum, not like trying to sneak in and take advantage of anything, not trying to illegally cross the border. Literally, showing up at the border seeking asylum the way one does when one is persecuted and one's life is in danger and one's heard about this beacon of freedom. We separated those families from their kids, lost a lot of their kids, put them in cages, and the U.S. populace complained a little bit, but didn't really mobilize in any large-scale way, and and it's already down the memory hole. So if people as rich as us as rich and as comfortable as us can be that casually cruel to complete innocence in a time of relative peace and prosperity, what is it going to look like when people who are more harried and under threat are facing difficult times? And then a number of people, 10 times that shows up on their border. Like there's just no indication at all that large-scale migration is going to be anything but a complete disaster. I don't see I don't see any signs of you know you're hard-pressed to find a counterexample. You're you're hard-pressed to find an example of 
large-scale in-migration that was handled with some grace and peace, or at least a lack of violence. Uh, you know, even in the U.S. history, the waves of immigration that came in, you know, we pat ourselves on the back about this, about being a melting pot. But if you go look at the details, every time a new wave came, they got crapped on. They got horrible jobs. They were beaten up. They weren't allowed to unionize. They were discriminated against for decades. Like we, you know, it was uh, brutal towards outsiders. That's sort of the uh, characteristic of humanity. So I agree with you that that like natural disasters in some sense we can deal with, but each other, (laughs) we, we have a lot, we have a lot of trouble dealing with each other. Yeah. And, and this is why, I'm a fan of space exploration. A lot of people say we don't have the resources to colonize space, but I see space as the one place that seemingly brings enemies together. It brought the Russians and the Americans together, the ISS. Now, that has temporarily fallen apart because of what's going on in Europe, hopefully temporarily. But we do need to go to space eventually. And so I'm a fan of let's take 1% of our GDP and figure that out and have a backup because the big rock is coming. The asteroid is coming. That will be a truly existential threat. It's not a matter of if. I I have zero faith Um, that space will prompt us into Star Trek-esque cooperation. I wouldn't be surprised to see conflict over, say, asteroid mining within a decade or two. Like I can absolutely imagine us fighting over that too, just having more things to fight over. Well, the genie's yeah. out of the bottle, right? We've already weaponized space. We have no idea how weaponized it is. And how much junk there is the up there already, how polluted us. it is already. Like, yeah, it's not, it's not an, an example that inspires yeah. a lot of optimism. I'm curious, you, you're a fan of, of AI. I'm a fan of narrow AI, I'm quite concerned about AGI and that being a genie that might get out of the bottle. And this is a debate. People like Elon Musk think that it is a very serious potential threat and we should really get serious about making safe AI. And I wholeheartedly agree. You know, a narrow AI is an amazing thing. If we can have a robot as an assistant and doing dirty jobs that are repetitive well, and dangerous. Is, is Absolutely, bit, I, I want think about that. AI a little bit to the way I think about markets, like you mentioned earlier. Markets are a great tool for a bounded task as long as they're under our control and we're clear that we made the tool and the task is what's important, not the tool. Once you pretend that markets are not a tool, that there's some natural state of affairs, that they're in charge, right? You want your market to be your tool, not your master. Same with same with AI. Yeah. There's so much to unpack here. I'm struggling to understand, though, why you think AI is such an important part of well, the energy just transition. Let me so take a, like a, a very prosaic example to, to, to what I'm talking about. So transmission lines, high capacity, long distance electricity transmission lines. We tend to only send something like 30 to 40% of the energy through them that theoretically could be sent through them, their capacity, because we're worried about them sagging or overheating. And the vast majority of them are out in the wilderness somewhere. The only way to find out if they've sagged or overheated is if a fire starts and some disaster comes. 
So now we're developing these super, super cheap sensors, tiny little cheap sensors and drones that can watch transmission lines and measure the amount they sag and ensure that as long as they're, because sag and heat are directly correlated. So measuring their sag is, is a way of measuring their heat. So we can send, you know, 40 to 50% more energy through them now because we know their exact real time capacity as opposed to their sort of average guessing at their capacity from a distance. Mm -hmm. So this is just sensors and machine learning that will alert an operator at a particular time. It's mm-hmm. not, it's nothing particularly fancy, but you can get, but if you could get 30% more energy through all of our existing transmission lines, that alone would, would be a revolution in, in, in electricity. Yeah, that and that's huge. just through not even particularly complicated software. And it's, and it's like another, I'll give you another example. Uh, one, one of my favorites, uh, a guy I used to talk to, if you're familiar with solar concentrating technology, it's just the fields of mirrors that are all reflecting the sun at a single point. So they heat heat that point really, really hot and heat fluid and create energy yep. that's called concentrated solar. And it's more expensive than solar PV right now. And people have been looking at ways to cut the cost. And I would talk to this guy who had had a very simple insight, which is instead of using these bespoke mirrors, these sort of specially curved mirrors that you have to produce in special factories, he's like, we're just going to do flat, dumb mirrors. And instead, we're going to have very sophisticated software tracking that can track the sun to like a one degree bit of accuracy. So you point the mirror at the sun more closely and you don't need as sophisticated a mirror. The point being you're using fewer materials, cheaper, dumber materials, and you're substituting smartness, intelligence, basically computing power is doing what the materials were doing before. So you've, you've dematerialized it in some sense and made it smarter. And then that kind of thing, right? Using fewer materials by being smarter about how you manufacture or transport or use or dispose of or recycle them, just being smarter about all that stuff, you can dematerialize a huge amount of the economy just through that. That's what I that's what I mean when I say machine learning and software and all this kind of stuff. It's just substituting intelligence for stuff. And there are so many opportunities to do that everywhere you look. We just we've had cheap stuff for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, literally, I literally interviewed. Ah. I interviewed a gentleman named John King today, who's who's doing just this. I literally, just with, got off the phone uh, with John King. I am not lying to you. He was who I was talking to for an hour before I'm talking to you. Literally today, and I, that's that's one reason I'm all jazzed up. Oh, I'm just awesome. like, what he's yep. doing. What he's doing is taking a bunch of relatively John. simple, low tech, already existing pieces. And just arranging them slightly differently, and the results could be transformative, right? He's not, it's not, there's no fancy new technology. It's just a clever insight. And this is what I mean about what a great time it is to be in this business. There are clever insights waiting to be plucked all over the place. Yeah. On the storage side, and John is part of this, uh, Hyperlite is part of this innovative storage because, you know, he's basically promoting pumping heat down into the earth in the form of yeah. hot water and then extracting it on demand. Heat up a rock, get the heat back out of and, the rock. Again, it's like a, could not be uh, more 
primitive in some ways. Yeah. And we already we already know this works because it's called geothermal. The earth is at 50 degrees if you go down a few feet and you can leverage that heat for cooling or heating. And it's a thing. This is just that on steroids, leveraging solar. And so anyway. So the presumption that we need a bunch of long-term storage is based on these models that show sort of, you know, as we were discussing before, wind and solar are variable. You need balancing. You need flexibility resources to balance them. You need to balance them on a kind of second to second, minute to minute, hour to hour basis, which we know how to do really well with lithium ion batteries. And then you also need, you know, like lithium ion batteries can get you up to like four hours of storage, six hours maybe. But then you also have, this is the the conventional wisdom. Then you also have these periods of low wind or low sun that could last for weeks or even whole seasons. So to cover that, yep. you need some yep. mechanism of energy storage that will A, hold a lot of energy and B, hold it for a long time. <laughs> and that's a really difficult problem to crack. I've been looking into it lately. There's all, you know, there's chemical ways of doing it. There's mixed chemical, physical ways of doing it. There's ways that just use gravity or water. There's all sorts, it's all sorts of people attacking this, but, but honestly, this is why I'm so excited about, from my survey, I think there are only two options that have really risen to the surface that can practically play that role at a reasonable cost or, or that even you know, maybe not yet, but could with some development. One is hydrogen, you know, which is everybody's favorite. You know, it's the answer to every question in energy these days. So one is hydrogen. If you convert, if you use renewable energy to split water and you get the hydrogen out of it, you're basically storing the renewable energy in the hydrogen and then you can get it back out by burning it for electricity or, or whatever you want to do with the hydrogen. So, but the advantage of hydrogen, there's a lot of conversions there. It's a lot of cost there, but the advantage of hydrogen is that once it's in the form of hydrogen, it'll just sit there, right? It won't lose. It doesn't degrade. It doesn't lose energy over time. It'll sit there and hold the energy mm-hmm. as long as you want it. It's not easy to yes, hold on It'll to, float away if you let it, but once it you've got a trap, if, you let, if you're not just careful, there. it'll float so, away. But. <laughs> whereas anything chemical, as you well know, yeah loses energy over time, just bleeds energy over time. So that's one. And the other is thermal, which is these new ideas popping up. But it turns like, you know, you're mentioning hyperlight. Like it turns out if you just heat the earth up beneath your feet really hot, it holds that heat really, really well for a really long time. Like, you know, he's he's talking about like... 10 to 15% losses over a six month period, which is, which is remarkable. Then you're getting into like seasonal, you know, then you're getting into seasonal lengths of time. Then you're getting into real uh, genuine long time. And he's doing this in existing oil wells, which have already been dug for him using existing cogen facilities, which are already sitting there waiting for him. So this is what I mean. He's just arranging these pieces. So, so my two, candidates for who might win that race. First, I would say it's just my instinct. I think we're going to end up in the final analysis needing less long-term storage than we now think we're going to need because I think we're going to find a lot of ways to move demand around, a lot of new ways of generation. We're going to find a lot of ways of solving the variability problem that's going to put off 
shrink the amount of long-term storage we end up needing. So that's my first thing I'd say. And then the two that are sort of competing to win that space, I think, are hydrogen and thermal. And of those two, if I was picking a favorite, <laughs> just a personal favorite, it's thermal because thermal has what I think is a huge advantage, which is that it's just dumb. It's just dumb and simple. You're literally just heating up a rock. So like you can do it anywhere. You're not getting into materials that come from nasty places or are mined in nasty ways. You can do it with abundant elements like dirt simple. You know, I was talking to a guy the other day who's just using big blocks of carbon, which are which are you know already produced in the billions around the earth already today. So thermal storage is very simple and dummy proof and you can do it anywhere and replicate it anywhere. And that's, I just like those kinds of technologies as a general matter. So if it were up to me to choose, I, I think I would put all my bets on thermal, but I know hydrogen is going to come along and do some stuff. We just don't know how much yet. Yeah. In the last few minutes we have together, Dave, what else should energy transition professionals and future professionals really wake up to, I guess, that they might not be well, awake to? You know, I, give, I guess if I were going to give what I think would be an accurate answer to that question, it would probably be that we should pay more attention to things that I also don't pay enough attention to, like agriculture and, and stuff like that. And you know, natural sequestration and stuff like that. But what I really want to say <laughs> selfishly is that what they should be aware of is that three simple steps get us about 75% of the way there on emissions. We want to clean up electricity. We want to electrify transportation and we want to electrify building heating and cooling. That's three steps. You can easily explain those to anyone any civilian can understand three steps. It, it, it goes from a big, we have to change everything in the world, mind blower that's hard to even think about to, oh, these three steps get us most yeah. of the way there. And furthermore, every person, professional or not, can play a role in that infrastructure. Everybody lives somewhere and gets around somehow. So you can electrify your own circumstances. So if you put solar panels on your roof and an EV in your garage and you and you switch out your natural gas furnace for a heat pump, you electrify your house, you have built a little bit of infrastructure, right? We need to start thinking of infrastructure differently. It's not big, distant things like dams and transmission lines all anymore. Every bit of electrified, every electrical appliance you have, every battery in a car that's connected to the grid, every solar panel, every house, every building is a piece of grid infrastructure. So you can have a material effect now. You know, this is like, it used to be that like, they would encourage you to get a, you know, cloth tote bag or the sort of, sort of solve climate through consumerism thing used to be so vapid. <laughs> and I, and I hated it for years and years, but we've kind of reached a point now where an individual is in a position to make meaningful decisions about their personal greenhouse gas emissions. And that just means electrify your life, get some clean electricity, electrify your vehicle, electrify your home heating and cooling. Like that's a big chunk now that is directly in your grasp. And if we can all just do that, we can get 75% of the way there. And furthermore, if you think, if you start thinking, pulling that string, 
what's required to get all the electricity clean, to get all the houses electrified, to get all the cars electrified? What else needs to be in place for that to happen in terms of technology, in terms of regulations, in terms of laws, local, you know, there's local laws are huge in this. Once you pull that string, you're like, oh, that's a lot of work. And there's a lot of different ways of approaching it. There's a lot of different ways of getting in. Like everybody can play a role in this story. There's room for everybody just on that core story of electrification. Like everybody can take meaningful action on it. So I don't think a lot of people know that. I think a lot of people hear climate change and they're just, they just feel a big wall of like futility and depression. (laughs) But like, one thing I've learned in my career writing about this stuff and running my my newsletter is that nothing gives, nothing brightens people's mood and relieves that anxiety and relieves that depression. Nothing works better than hearing about people practically working to solve it, hearing about the clever people that are at work doing stuff about it and hearing about what you can do and then doing stuff, right? Just just the knowledge that it's a solvable problem and there are legions of people around you working to solve it and you can be part of those legions. Like nothing relieves anxiety like seeing people at work and joining them. And I think the fourth wheel to that would be diet. I am a pescatarian and I only made that transition for health reasons primarily, but the more I learn about the carbon footprint of raising birds and mammals for food, I recognize that that is a very unsustainable scenario from pretty much any angle I look at it, as far as I can tell. We just cannot continue on the path that we're on there. If you want to argue for vegetarianism, you can argue your way there from like five different directions. It's just, it's over, it's over determined. The cruelty is just huge and undeniable. The environmental impact is a friggin' nightmare. The impact on your health is bad. There's just like, pick your reason to do it. It's just really difficult to do. Like I haven't done it. Like I'm, I, I at the same time know that I should and don't. And I know that there are millions of people in that same basic basket. And it's so close to hearth and home that it really activates people's defenses and activates people's kind of status quo bias. You know, it's really a hot, hot potato. And I, I'm sort of at the point, I sort of think, at least for now, it's good that people are trying to persuade other people. And it's and I think it's happening beneath the surface, especially in the younger generations. But I think at this point, for climate people to make it a headline is probably more counterproductive than productive. So I just sort of silently judge everybody and myself. <laughs> On this, on this, but don't make a big deal out of it. <laughs> but, but me too. So, you heard it here. You're all, all a bunch kind of losers loser together. <laughs> oh my goodness! All right. Well, I think we should end it there. I look forward to seeing your interview with Hyperlight or hearing it anyway. And. Yeah, there is there's a lot of reason for hope and and I'm really glad that you are hopeful. There's a difference between being hopeful and 
being overly uh, don't put too many eggs in in hope i hope is not a strategy that's the thing yes technology technology is a strategy we need to deploy 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 that technology and really lean into this hope is not the cure for anxiety and despair action is the cure for anxiety and despair indeed well you can find all of our content at cleanpower.group forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to the show. Give it a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. That helps others find this content. The content is for you and hopefully many, many others who have not yet discovered it. So please do that. Give it a rating and a review. You can reach out to me on Twitter, TG Montague. I love to hear from my listeners. And with that, how can our listeners reach you, Dave? Uh, you want to go to Volts dot wtf and there you will find my newsletter and my podcast and my email address and uh, a community of people who are similarly fascinated by these things well thank you so much dave roberts thanks a lot for, thanks for having me i'm tim montague let's grow solar the clean power hour is brought to you by cps america the maker of north america's number one three-phase string inverter with over six gigawatts shipped in the u.s the CPS America product lineup includes three-phase string inverters ranging from 25 to 275 kW. Their flagship inverter, the CPS 250-275, is designed to work with solar plants ranging from 2 megawatts to 2 gigawatts. The 250-275 pairs well with CPS America's exceptional data communication, controls, and energy storage solutions. Go to chintpowersystems.com to find out more.